It's been more than 50 years since Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon. Now two Canadian astronauts may follow in his footsteps. Space exploration, space travel, there is so much activity. The Chinese are involved, the Indians, the Japanese, NASA, of course, even Elon Musk. Our guest today says Canada is a small but mighty power in space exploration. Elizabeth Howell, author of the Canada Arm and Collaboration, also a couple of other books, The Search for Life on Mars and The Science of Time Travel. She's a professor of communications, and I guess it would be fair to say space junkie. Welcome, Elizabeth. Yes, that's <laughs> how, how did you become a junkie when it came to space? What what uh, tweaked your interest? <laughs> well, um, I came from the city of Ottawa, a uh, small suburb sort of outside of it. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty quiet childhood, despite the fact that I lived in the capital <laughs> city. And so a lot of my days were spent with books and uh learning educational videos, that type of a childhood, lots of time with my family. And in amongst that, I saw the movie Apollo 13 when I was just uh-huh. getting into being a teenager. And so the the story, which is a real life story, described these astronauts that were going around the moon and they had an explosion along the way and they solved the problem and they came back to Earth. That was a really great thing about the story. It was serious, but they, they made it home and all was safe. And as I was watching it, I thought, what an example of teamwork and isolated circumstances I mean, maybe not those words. I was only right. a teenager. That was really the impression that it had upon me. So that launched a long journey, which eventually ended up with uh, the book that you mentioned, Canada Arm Collaboration, and quite a few other fun things as well. But didn't you become a journalism student and you were a business reporter or something at one point? That's right. So um, I went into journalism because my strength was in writing and I thought that I could communicate all the wonderful work that Canadians are doing in space because, as I just mentioned, Senator, we're a small space power, but we have done a lot of things. It was our legs that landed first on the moon on the robotic lander, Apollo 11's robotic lander Eagle. So even though Hmm. we are was the very first to step on the moon, very first human, Canadian legs and Canadian feet got there first from uh, Montreal. And so uh, I love telling these little business stories in the business journal. And uh, it just exploded, so to speak, into uh, a number of other fields over the years. Yes, exploded in a good way. Let's put it it that way. So you've said now, and, and this is what your book was about, small but mighty, and that's a great little example. But we we don't seem to be big players now with everybody else getting uh, into the game. First, the, the announcement, though, um, in December about the Canadian astronauts. What does that really mean? Are we going to send these two Albertans to the moon or to Mars or where are they going? So um, the announcements really began about a year or so ago when we decided that we were going to contribute to NASA's moon efforts. So what NASA wants to do, and this is all depending on funding and politics and a bunch of other don't hold me to this timeline it's nasa's problem but (laughs) if they make it what they want to do is send people to the moon surface by 2024 and essentially stay there so they want to be using the ice and the dust and all the resources that are there to build moon bases and to make settlements and to use it as kind of like an outpost uh, sort of like a trading outpost, I suppose, we had back in the day here in Canada. So it'd be the same idea on the moon, except now you're going on to Mars and other asteroids and picking up all their resources. So Canada signed on to make a new Canada arm called Canada Arm 3 that would be basically helping one of the space stations of this new era called Gateway. And because we provided robotics, 
It's just like we did for the shuttle program with Canada and with the International Space Station program with Canada Arm 2. These are essential because they let people do repairs without having to go outside. They can just control it robotically. And now we even have Canadian controllers in Montreal controlling the Canada Arm 2 at times, so the Dexter robotic hand to do repairs on the International Space Station. So there is precedence. And now we're going to the moon. So because we provided these technologies in exchange, we get occasional seats on missions. And that's where these two Canadians get to go in. And so we've negotiated one seat on a moon mission that's going around the moon. We hope in 2023, again, don't hold me to timeline. <laughs> and then the other mission will happen somewhere in the universe in the 2030s. They haven't said where it could be earth, could be moon, could be somewhere else. We'll find out. It's an adventure. So this is that's kind of how it works in the space world. Then if if you kick in and you provide some piece of technology or money that works, then the quid pro quo is, OK, you get to send one of your people up. Exactly. One of our people and also a number of our experiments. And so running yeah. along with the astronaut are typically a dozen or so Canadian experiments, mostly focused on health and science. Yeah and really worrying about the outcomes of people that live in rural communities and uh, Northern communities in Canada, especially indigenous populations. So that's where you see applications and also seniors, because when you come back from six months in space, you have risks of osteoporosis, muscle weakness, blood circulation problems, the same thing that some maybe 85 or 90 year olds would have in a uh, long-term care facility. So that's where that research is applicable. That's why, I mean, uh, that's what, as I read it, I thought, well, that's all well and good as we're looking at the impact on astronauts, but that's a handful of people. You're saying this is truly applicable for others. Exactly. It's not um, completely one-to-one correlation because if you send a healthy 50-year-old up there, it's Mm. not exactly the same result as if you sent up somebody who's 90. But uh, they do have a single source, a single senior that went up there, a 77-year-old John Glenn, who went up on a space shuttle mission for a couple of weeks back in the 1990s. And so they do have one senior. And I presume that as private spaceflight happens, it has more astronauts pay to go into space for very short times. We might see more seniors go up soon. All right. So the the overall question, I want to come back to, to where we're at and all of the activity, but why do we, I mean, I know it's really appealing and sexy and interesting and exciting, but do we need to do this? Are we somehow running out of space? Are there only things we can learn up there? Like there's lots of space here in Saskatchewan. Let me tell you, <laughs> if, we, if, we, if we're running out of it. Um, I agree. The depopulation idea is not sustainable. You can't send up enough people in rockets to solve the population problem on Earth. We're not going to solve the famine problem on Earth. We're not going to solve a lot of things by shooting people up there. And so don't believe what I won't give names. I don't want to be rude. You start reading the rhetoric of people who want to go and send settlements to Mars and use that terrible word colonize, which has a lot of implications in Canada, especially. I hate Mm -hmm. that Anyway, don't believe that rhetoric. That's not what it should be about. Um, Really, the best way to do this is to think about it like a targeted question and then spend the money to try and answer targeted questions. And so I'm trying to think about some of the examples of Canadian innovation, but you can can think about when maybe BlackBerry, which is a tiny little company, and they were talking about having phones with touch screens and with buttons and 
like that. Nobody really saw the worth of it, I would say, in the 1990s when that thing was still at its infancy, but now we have it all in our pocket. The same went for things like laser technology. In space, too, um, one thing that we really got from it was a miniaturization of computers, funny enough. And so when we were sending up astronauts on these spacecraft in the 1960s, it was very primitive technology. But at the time, it was momentous. It was in a single room, you know, as the uh, as the expression goes. So I can't tell you today what the winning the winning technologies will be, because it's today. I can't see down the road fifty or sixty years. We couldn't even predict a year ago about coronavirus, right? Right. It's, but I would say that if we sort of understand that there are problems on Earth that need to be addressed, fundamental problems, structural problems, especially that the coronavirus has shown us, if we bear that and we also allocate the resources to that, then there also should be a part of our society that is devoted to innovation, to try and think about problems of the future. And space falls in that sector, along with other things that might fall into technology development. And innovation begets innovation is basically exactly. the argument. So that's where you can't really predict what's going to happen, but I could give you a theoretical example. It's possible that somebody who's living on the moon for a couple of years is going to be forcing better innovations in generators, for example, that could help northern communities, but it's just possible. There might be another path that would get that same result, but again, I can't tell you. It's the black yeah. swan, right? I can't predict. The problem is often a company and a government needs a goal to shoot for to try and force innovation. And sometimes, unfortunately, the goal is not about that humanistic type goal of trying to help others, but it's something that's a little bit more focused on, I would say, prestige almost, right. or business opportunity. But my hope is, a little socialist in me, that <laughs> sort of opportunities that come from these capitalist ventures would then come back eventually into the population. But again, I do agree that there needs to be balance, and that's why we have Honestly, people like you, Senator, to make sure that everybody is taken care of, you know, so don't have that. So Neil Armstrong went in 1969. Um, yes. Others have gone, but now uh, there, there seems to have been a big space there where really, I mean, that was such a dramatic moment and it was, it, it changed the world and it changed our view of the world and that there was something else out there. What What's happened? Did we we see most of the development now, at least this is from a layperson's point of view, from the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos and the Richard Bransons and all these guys. Is that where it's going to inevitably end up because of the cost? So I see the people that are going into space in the very near future having to pay expensive tickets. So let's say $200,000 Canadian, obviously out of the reach of most of us. It's just not something that's really possible. The only way that I think you can meaningfully participate is in something like the small satellite resolution, sorry, revolution. So um, I spoke earlier about how computers were miniaturized when we went into space. Right. Now we can send something that's not too much bigger than my book here. And the satellite will beam back information about say crop health in Saskatchewan or the state of water in the north. And this is just from a tiny little satellite with a tiny little camera on board that can bring back almost real-time information. Now, there are problems with these satellites too. If you put too many of them, they start to pollute the sky. You can't mm -hmm. see the stars and the constellations in the same way. That especially has implications for indigenous populations and also for people who do a professional astronomy and need to have a really crisp, clear view of the sky. So I'll just be cautious in saying that. But on the other hand, these satellites are relatively cheap. 
you can have a university or a small company participating in these. And as rockets get more, you know, self-landing, futuristic um, composite technologies that don't weigh as much, so you can send more into space with less infrastructure, basically, then you're going to find that the cost of these satellites drops and drops and drops. And soon maybe, maybe an ordinary household will be able to purchase, you know, access to these. And maybe rural areas will be able to get cell service and see Netflix. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding, but I'm not because these no, are big no. issues. Yeah, it's a huge issue. We even have spots yeah. here in my my capital city of Ottawa, which has a lot of, I must admit, very urbanized, very rich areas. But you just go an hour outside of it. One of my really good friends, his his family lives in uh, Stittsville, which mm-hmm. is in the bar, and they're not in the urban part of Stittsville. They're just on the border of Stittsville. They can't get good cell service. They can't get good internet service. And right now, they're seniors during a pandemic. You can appreciate how difficult it is for them to get timely information. And they're just living half an hour's drive from downtown. And that's in an urban area. Places like Saskatchewan, the north, there are whole swaths of places that really, really need timely access, especially right now. So what? where do you think, as you do all your assessments of this, where do you think the focus should be, Moon or the Mar- or Mars? Like, that seems to be the, the competing landing points. <laughs> I think the Moon first, and it's because it's a good staging ground. The Moon is relatively uh, a short distance from Earth. A usual rocket ride takes about three days to get there. So if something happens, like that explosion I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. the mission, you can rocket those astronauts back home very quickly. It's also cheaper to send things there because it's not too far away. And the last thing to think about too, is if you send something to Mars, your opportunity is every two years. And so if anybody wants to explore that in more detail for a lay audience, you should look at the movie, The Martian, which had Matt Damon and came out in uh, 2015. And basically it shows the problems of trying to have humans on Mars and trying to get stuff out to them when it's urgent, because you have to every two years for the rocket opportunity to happen for the two planets to be aligned. Otherwise it's way too much fuel and way too much time. And so now, didn't, sorry, go ahead. I just was going to say, I think the moon is easier for those reasons. Yeah. You, you actually went on a mock Mars mission. I read if this is true in, in the middle of a Utah desert where they kind of simulated this and you locked yourselves up for two weeks. What what was that like? And and how do they know they're simulating Mars? <laughs> we don't truly know if we're simulating Mars because we haven't landed and lived there for two or three years. But we do have an idea from the spacecraft that have been on the surface. Think about the Curiosity rover, for example. That's a NASA rover that's running around right now. It's climbing a mountain, taking pictures. So we have an idea. We have a sense of the weather from looking at orbit. But um, you're right, it's hard to know exactly what it's going to be like. But that's why the simulations have value is because we can try and imagine what happens when we lock a bunch of people up in a facility for two weeks. And so anybody who's been on a car ride, and that is just about any Canadian, right, who's <laughs> but all the same, like you're going on a long car ride from X city to X city, often in the middle of nowhere. That's just Canada, right? Like I think about my drives in northern Ontario when I was a kid, and it was not quite the same as Saskatchewan, a little less flat, yeah. but still, you know, just trees and trees as far as the eye can see. And my family had a cottage, a little trailer by a lake that we called a cottage, actually. It wasn't all that big or rich, but I spent a lot of time in isolation thinking about these things. And it's hard to get along, right? Like, even if you're 
a kid trying to do their best and you got loving parents, at times you just get a little bit hamstrung by the lack of space. You're just going. Which is the, what the whole world is experiencing with COVID. We're locked up with people we may love, but at the end of it, we may not like them. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's going through that. Some to more yeah. serious degrees than others, obviously, such yeah. as some relationships. But for people who are in a fairly stable situation, it's still very mm-hmm. difficult. So we need to think about how to fix these problems before we send the people up in the spacecraft and spend millions of dollars doing that. And that's what these simulations are supposed to do. And I noticed myself, you had asked what I was noticing. Um, I spent two weeks with a number of students that were from different um, ages and stages at the University of North Dakota, and also a person from France. And we were from ages about 30 to 65, different careers, everything from communications to medicine to engineering, Um, outdoors person, there was an emergency outdoors person. We still had conflicts, even with this broad range of experience. Um, and there were times when we were having conflicts with our ground control because we were saying those guys on, out there know nothing about what we're going through in here. So we feel tempted to take this direction. And this has been shown in other studies that conflict will happen and that you're not going to be always agreeing with other groups. There'll be an in-group, out-group problem like high school or elementary yes. school experience, right? So we need to study with this, this with as many people as possible, not just the 200 or 300 people who've gone into space, but also with you and me and other ordinary people so that we get a sense of how the personality dynamics of humans operate, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing that, I mean, they must be looking for. Of course, the astronauts are extremely well-educated and they're smart and they're physically fit and they're all of that. But, but watching what what happens in a in a crisis? We're we're watching it even with our own political leaders. Who copes? Who doesn't cope? Um, and if something happens in these situations, then who's the natural leader? Who panics? Who falls apart? Do you actually see that in those mock missions? You definitely see that. And so I won't go into details because I want to protect the privacy of my crewmates. Yeah. We did have a situation where basically one person made fun of another person. And the second person was so put out by it um, and they had encouraged the rest of us to follow along. I wasn't really sure what to do and I should have spoken up, you know, in retrospect, that was my bad. But anyway, the second person who was being made fun of was so upset and isolated and angry that um, they were thinking about leaving. They didn't actually do it, but we had a serious discussion as a crew and we also involved the ground control, which is the Mars Society essentially. And we began to talk through the merits sort of humanistically, not on a pro and con, but kind of what would be best for the mission? Would it be best for this person to stay here or to leave? And we decided ultimately that the person should stay and we made steps to better integrate our personalities. Let me put it that way. We decided A, to make fun of folks, you know, and, yeah. you know, and, and B, we have to meet people where they're at. You know, this this is actually more of a a serious situation and we shouldn't be spending our energy just looking at ways of doing practical jokes. We should actually be spending our energy on doing things that will be of value to other scientists and engineers that will be following our mission. And so we actually failed, I would say, mm-hmm. at first figuring out what we should be using our time for. We wasted our time. We wasted about a day on that. And I regret that. That's one of my biggest regrets about spending the time there. Well, and the other thing is you were in in reality in the Utah desert. So if somebody wanted to leave, they actually could. But if you're on Mars or if you're on the moon, you just can't take your toys and leave. The toys belong to everybody. (laughs) And we actually, the facility did experience an emergency only a year later. So I wasn't there, but a fire broke out in the greenhouse next door. And the greenhouse was attached to the habitat and the habitat was at risk. 
They got the fire under control all by themselves with no firefighters. And the flames were six feet high, uh, about 18 meters. So this is no small fire. This yeah. is a serious fire. The only reason they got it out of, sorry, under control, the only reason they got it under control was that one of the people was a trained firefighter. And that was by coincidence. We didn't know it yeah. when that crew yeah. was selected. And so things do happen out there and you need to have the resources and infrastructure to uh, to make sure that folks can take care of themselves because you never, never know. And do they do that in terms of the astronauts that end up, you know, I'm thinking about life on the space station. I mean, you've, you've got a meld and they come from different countries. The Russians are there and the Americans are there. And I mean, you, you have to be able to get along and they don't have time to do that in advance because they're coming from other places. Well, what they do actually is they require all astronauts to go through two or two and a half years of basic training, almost like the military. And what you have to do as a part of that is isolated expeditions. You actually head out in the wilderness with your buddies and you figure out how to live there. And you have a trainer with you who will show you some of the way, but you're learning how to work there. So you're going into the forest, you're going in Russia into the remote steppe. Um, You could do it here in Canada too, for all that matters. It's the same kind of experience. In Italy, they also have a program where you go down, it's rather in Sardinia, so nearby Italy. But anyway, you go down into caves and you spend a week living underground, which is a weird environment all of its own. There's no sunlight, first of all, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just a basic human problem. So they already know a little bit before they get into being a full-fledged astronaut after two years of training. And then when they select the crew, the crew is selected two years ahead of time. And it's for those reasons that you described. It's that way they're not always together, obviously. That's logistically impossible and not really good because you got to go all over the world to be training. But right spend a fair amount of time together and they do a fair amount of simulation together and they really know each other's personality to quote the movie Apollo 13. Again, we knew the sound of each other's voices. You know, that was one way that they were describing the cohesion. But this raises the question about uh, the commercialization of space. I mean, you're just going to have people, okay, of course, who have money (laughs) because these tickets are going to be expensive to go, but, but they don't undergo that kind of rigorous training and they can't. I mean, this is mostly a, a lark or they're, they might be testing something in particular. But if it's commercial, uh, then you don't have that opportunity to to put them to the test. Exactly. That's the problem. The Federal Aviation Administration, basically the equivalent of Transport Canada here, they put forward that and they're still trying to figure it out. Now, none of the companies are quite ready to fly, folks. I mean, right now. Yeah. Pandemic, we don't want to think about being in a small space with anybody, let alone in a, a spacecraft. Right. The ones that do go into space just briefly, they take all these special precautions, professional astronauts. But for the ordinary people, you need to have, I think, a basic level of training. But what that will be still hasn't been publicly discussed very much. I'm sure they're looking at it. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's take a look at who's going where. I mean, just this is I've spent the last few days reading as much as I can. It's so overwhelming, honestly. Um, the the UAE, the United Arab Emirates is up. China's up. Of course, NASA is up. India's up. Uh, it, you know, it's like everybody's up there, or at least trying to find a way to get there. What kind of coordination goes on when it's really still, and we all know this, still a bit of a space race for that prestige that you talked about? That's exactly the thing. We have the companies, rather the countries now, we're pivoting into yeah. countries that are moving into the prestige. But there also is the fact that space is just darn expensive, right? Um, yeah. 
I mentioned that it costs $200,000 to get a private passenger up there. You can imagine what it would be like to go to Mars or to go to the moon, even with just a bread box size spacecraft. So there's a couple of ways that countries go about it. They can go on their own. Um, You mentioned uh, China, I think, out of that list of uh, countries there. China's sending a mission all on its own right now to to, uh, Mars, for example. And it's going to be an orbiter, so something that goes around uh, Mars. And they're also going to have a lander with a little rover on it so it can go around and explore the uh, the surface. That's massively expensive. But yeah. they have found ways in their budget to make it work. And it's partly because it's tied to the military, actually. They feel but that aren't, yeah. aren't they also going to try and do their own space station, not the one that... So they've already done uh, two or three space stations, and they're looking at doing more of a multi-modular one. So I actually, um, you can't see it on your your podcast, but I have a model of the International Space Station right here on my desk. And it's basically a Lego model, and it's the same idea. It's sort of little, little, little pieces put together, building a big, huge structure. And so that's what China wants to do next, instead of just having a single room, maybe three or four. So that's one way that you can do it, just the expensive, lonely, uh, let's do it by ourselves, but get all the accolades and the glory. Or what you can do is some sort of an agreement. So the International Space Station is actually a formalized agreement between 15 or so countries with participation metrics. And there's all sorts of things, like including who gets blamed if somebody commits a crime on the space station? That's actually in legislation. It's usually the country that has that model, the module that the crime takes place in, for example. So all these little mm-hmm. things you think about, right? Like crime, technology development, what's private, what's not, that's all covered under the agreement. Um, going to the moon, that's another agreement under Artemis. That's the new program. And so Canada and other countries are signing agreements for that. And so they become more formalized as it goes along. First, there's like a memorandum of agreement. There might be a little treaty in there. And then they move on into actual contracts. And so the more money's attached to it, the, the later the stages, the harder it is to break it, just like any commercial agreement. I don't want to be a cynic, and I know there's kind of a UN-based outer space treaty to which everybody uh, is signators, but we also know that doesn't work on Earth all that well. So <laughs> there's no guarantee that it, it works there. I agree. And um, there was a recent example on Mars, not literally on Mars, but it started on Earth and was supposed to be on Mars. So um the Europeans are going to be sending their own rover to Mars in about two years. It's called the ExoMars Rosalind Franklin rover. It's named after a famous DNA scientist. Anyway, long ago, they were going to do that with NASA, but NASA was running out of money for its science programs and wanted to prioritize a new telescope called James Webb, which is going up yeah. I think, this year, but it's been massively delayed. It's billions of dollars over budget and the money had to come from somewhere. This so- is supposed to replace Hubble, is it? Is that the... It's Hubble, exactly. That's yeah. Exactly. So NASA was feeling like we can't back out of this telescope because Hubble has been a landmark for a generation, but now we don't have any money left. And so they went to the Europeans and said, we're so sorry, but we're going to have to pull out of our agreement. The Europeans weren't happy. Let's let's, let's be clear about that. So then they had to pivot because they didn't have the money to go to Mars on their own in their science budget. They had other priorities, just like the rest of us. And so they partnered with the Russians. And it's now a Russian-European mission that's heading out to Mars and doing several missions, not just this rover, but several of them. 
So when you raise the the Chinese one, I mean, you know, the debates that are going on here about uh, human rights issues, about whether or not we should be allowing Huawei in our country. And some of our Five Eyes partners have said, no, we don't want to do business with the Chinese. This is this and the the kind of the ownership they have in terms of the tech world all around the um, the the need that all the companies, the Twitters and the Amazons and everything have to have a relationship with China. When, when they go on their own, then there's kind of no way to find out exactly what they're doing. I mean, we're having this very basic problem on, on China not letting the WHO officials in. I mean, they're going to go in now, but to even find out the basics about COVID, this, this kind of, this is a little scary. It's very scary. And it's not only true of the Chinese, but also of certain commercial companies. And so I alluded to, for example, earlier, the fact that you've got these bread box sized satellites floating around out there. And if you have too many, all these problems arise, right? There are too many of them polluting the sky. And also they could crash into each other and cause debris, which could then crash into other things and maybe even create a ricochet effect, like what you saw in the movie Gravity, but not that extreme. That was a little Hollywood, that, but that shows the idea. Anyway, um, SpaceX has come under a lot of criticism for the last, I would say, two or three years, because you probably are aware that Canada is going to be participating in those Starlink missions, right? Yes, yes. going to be giving very necessary broadband to remote communities. So let's first be clear and say this is great. But the problem is there's so many of these Starlink satellites out there that they could pose a threat to astronomy and also to this debris problem effectively locking us out of going into space if there's too much debris, right? And so it's tough. We need some of these services, but on the other hand, there's a risk. And with the Chinese, they have money, they have commitment, but then there also is this terrible record that needs to be overcome and explained. Um, They're not participants in the International Space Station program, I'll point out for those reasons, but there's talk about maybe involving them in future endeavors, but then what's the best balance? What's the best way to do that? I think, yeah, I mean, people need to be more aware of this. This is another one of these issues that we need to wrestle. But but let me just come back now to the Elon Musks and the, the Jeff Bezos and the Bransons. So they are, I mean, you, you talk about this satellite service and, you know, so that we have better cell communications. I mean, that the Elon Musks of the world are doing that because they can afford to do it and national governments apparently can't so we're kind of beholden on these guys who for whatever motivates them uh want to do this and are willing to pay the price and it's the same problem that we're having with a lot of the architecture of the internet how many of us use third-party services from the united states from our email and think about the security implications of having canadian information passing through just for a sake of example google services right right or social media networks that are American, mostly American, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, Instagram. So there's all this information that's passing around. And there's been a lot of discussion lately, and maybe here is not the forum for it, but we did have that incident in the United States last week as we're speaking here, where people were taking over the Capitol for a while and had to reach out. That was driven by discussion on social media over a period of years. And so there's a whole aspect of media responsibility Uh, You and I are journalists, Senator, by training, and we were trained in how to disseminate information, but folks on social media sometimes don't know 
or sometimes they just willingly want to take a different path. And that creates influence, especially over long periods of time with huge numbers of people. And so, well, and the the censorship issue is another one. I mean, a lot of people are mad at Donald Trump, but if you start cutting off everybody's access, uh, you know, to services or the providers of the services, like the parlors of the world that now uh, can't, you know, these are huge issues that affect us every single day in terms of how we communicate with one another on everything. I mean, it's not, it's, it, it's shopping, it's education as we see kids at home, it's how we exchange ideas. And now we're going to have all these worlds functioning out there in space that nobody's in, I don't know, there's, it's very hard to monitor. It's very hard to monitor. I agree. And, um, when you think about maybe the far future, 50 or 100 years from now, if you have settlements, I'm going to carefully use that word again because of right. the implication of connotations, yeah. Exactly, habitations. That's another good one. If you have a settlement on Mars and they're working out there separate from Earth, is it possible that over time they will want to break away? This has been explored so many times in science fiction. You could just pick up a set of Isaac Asimov novels or anything else. <laughs> exactly. explored in there. There's TV series. So, I got questions, you know, about what is going to be happening as we fragment onto other worlds. And also, even in our pandemic and post-isolation into social media, many folks don't really have much other choice than to be online right now. It's very hard to go outside for legitimate reasons. And so you sit online for 14 hours a day. It's very possible to become polarized just from being stuck and not being able to access your usual educational and company-based and vital-based, family-based social networks. Yeah, it raises a, a whole lot of issues. I was reading uh, some articles over the weekend on on the ethical considerations. You know, this is, in fact, what we're talking about here. Who, who gives countries or individuals the moral agency to do this? I mean, we, I don't know where that forum for discussion is down here on Earth. I, I wouldn't be confident if it was just the UN. <laughs> it's mostly just the UN, to be honest. But often there's sort of, um, it's kind of like that schoolyard mentality. So if one yeah. of the, the schoolyard is from the perception of the others acting out, then there could be that peer pressure. Now, I was a kid who was bullied as a kid, right? So I had it kind of in the opposite sense. I was trying to do the right thing, or at least I thought I was, you know, like hard trying to please the teacher do my schoolwork and I was bullied because of that so you can be bullied for good reasons you know if you're right. trying to be sort of environmentally sustainable for example in your rocket practices stop spewing the carbon dioxide and start spewing water instead right you know mm-hmm. or you could have somebody like China who a few years ago they actually conducted a test in space and they said we want to see how well our missile works up there and uh whether it would actually work if it was to crash into a satellite and you know Anyway, that caused a lot of debris, and it also caused a lot of consternation in the uh, the scientific community, and that activity was gradually moved away from, thank goodness. But uh, there's, you know, bullying for good, and there's bullying for bad, and know what's what, especially when everything is so topsy-turvy right now. Well, and there's nothing much stopping us or them from conducting those kinds of experiments, like let's crash into the satellite and see what happens um, when there's no way to get there to police them or for us to even know that it has occurred. Exactly. So uh, it's, it's a really tough forum, I agree. Yeah. When we look at these other kind of surrounding issues, there was a, a new study that came out 
at the end of the year, the end of last year, December, on the age of the universe. And somebody has now declared that it's 13.77 billion years old. I don't know how we know that. Uh, does it matter? Okay, how we know that is from looking at points in space like stars and seeing how fast they move apart, basically. Um, I'm explaining the very, very... Yes. Yeah way of doing it. I'm not even an astrophysicist myself. So please, those who might yes. have more expertise, forgive me, but that's essentially <laughs> you're looking at how fast they're moving. Why it matters. Um, I agree that in the day-to-day, how we're going to get through this pandemic, who cares? You know, like, right. let's get through this pandemic. Let's protect Canadians. Let's give them the fundamental sort of economic support, et cetera, to get through this. That's, that's where I'm at there. So if you're struggling, you can ignore me here. Okay. Just yeah. Yeah. So you need pressure your politicians to do the right thing, pressure your communities to be accessible. So please take that into mind. But on the more higher sense, there's a few things that it can motivate. So first of all, sending up a telescope up there does create a measure of innovation in that sense that I was talking about earlier. Right. So it does create jobs. It does create an incentive for education. So that's really good. And another thing that helps us do too, is if we can put the age of the universe into context, we can understand how old the earth is. That's not only cool for just scientific reasons, but it also can help us date rocks. And maybe that can help us a little bit with finding resources, for example, on a more economic level. So I agree you really have to stretch it, but there are some aspects that can be gleaned from it. But for me, it's really just about the wonder, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I'm trapped in a, a situation just like the rest of us here where I'm trying to figure out how to get through my day and how to do it in a way that serves others. And the way that I try and serve is to write about topics that just are inherently interesting. And if it gives somebody two minutes of distraction in an otherwise terrible day, I'll do it, you know? Yeah. Well, and also that we do have to be thinking about this. I mean, we do have lots of issues to deal with here on earth. There's no question uh, about that, but, but these are, I mean, these, this is an inevitable trajectory that we're on in terms of going to space. I can't imagine it would ever stop. And so we we do have to do this. The other thing that I found fascinating just in, in my reading to prepare for this conversation with you is of how uh, UFOs have now been legitimized in the sense that the Pentagon is now releasing photos, uh, their official reports. Um, I need to get what's in your head on that. What do you think? (laughs) Okay. Um, So I'm going to pull the standard scientific um, point of view and just say, I need more evidence. I need to look more seriously at what has been brought out. And there's a wealth of information. I would need to actually sit down and almost write, write a book on it to try and understand because I need to pull stuff from Operation Blue Book back in the 50s and 60s and I okay. think 40s, you know, that was when they were looking at the Roswell incident, the 1947 right. incident where uh, aliens might have appeared in Roswell, New Mexico and everything else that flowed from that since. So I'm not sure about that. But what I can tell you is we are we are looking for aliens legitimately. They just might not be the little green men or <laughs> green beings, you know, that we yeah. all grew up with. Um We have a rover, I say we because Canadians are involved too, but it's mostly NASA's mission, but there's a rover called Perseverance by NASA landing on Mars next month, and it's going to be looking for promising rock samples with fossils in them, we hope, to set aside, and then we can learn more potentially about microbes and other planets. There's a water-spewing moon at Jupiter called Europa that could be an example of where life resides in other places. 
because there's water, there's a source of energy, there might be microbes down there. So there are at least two missions, European and NASA, that are heading out there to learn more. And then we also have telescopes that are just kind of combing the sky, looking for planets that are close to the size of Earth and have you know, an orbit or a little circle that's close enough to the sun to get a bit of warmth. If they have liquid water, maybe there's a little bit of life on there because we know from looking at Earth that life is tenacious. Look at the amount of life that's up in the Canadian Arctic, even in the coldest regions, right? right. Or under the ice. Um, this has been found in Russia too, the, the Vostok region. So um, we are looking for aliens. I'm just not sure they're going to be talking back to us, ultimately. Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, we tend to see everything in our own likeness, right? If there's life on other planets, it's got to look like us and be us. But, I mean, you're talking about microbial life. That's that's the first step. Exactly. So the way that I try and get excited about that kind of life, the communicative life, is I just open up a Star Trek episode any <laughs> season. And what helps me there, too, is that they're always about diversity and inclusion, especially the newest um, iteration, Star Trek Discovery, one of the newest ones. Um, they just had the first transgender and non-binary characters in the last few weeks. And that makes me so excited. It's about representation <laughs> and it's about getting people to see people like themselves in fiction and then hopefully yeah. in real life as well. Right. So that, that's where I try and go whenever I want to have. I think we're I think we're doing a better job with science fiction than we may be doing in real life. But <laughs> that that's a whole other issue. Are you a science fiction junkie as well as the as the the science part of it? Do you do both? I do more of the hard science, but as I've yeah. got older, I've realized the wisdom of trying to look at science yeah. fiction for that reason that you just described. It's more, I think, representative of where we should go. And so, especially in these unprecedented times, as people call it, I find myself yes, yes. to science fiction situations just to try and get me thinking about how I can best contribute right now, because I know that I have amounts of privilege sitting here, even right. just on internet connection, not worrying about how to get out or my job or how to get my groceries, all that's really taken care of within my own network. And there are a lot of people that aren't that way right now. And so uh, what can I do to serve basically while not exposing that other community to myself in a pandemic. It's uh, the yeah. never end right? But these these questions that about, you know, I was reading in one line there, they said that the, the, the Milky Way might just be some cosmic graveyard for extinct civilizations, extinct civilizations. Like we might be, I don't know, the hundredth iteration of people um, as we know it, that it could have gone on in great, like, can you contemplate that? I can actually contemplate that, but I can also contemplate that just like in the old days when we had Canadians on one side of the ocean who had just migrated from various spots of Europe and mm. never would go home again, and it was hard to communicate back to your hometown. I feel like the same thing is happening out there in space that there are other civilizations. They might be just so far away that our signals, which we only started sending to them in the 1960s, it's only, what, 50, 60 years ago. They might not have got out there yet. The universe is very, yeah. it's very long. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it just takes a long time for information to get back and forth. And so our searches right now are tentative and they're small and they're, they're worthy, but we just need a lot more time and a lot more patience. And unfortunately, our human lifespans are not friendly towards that, right? We want it. Yeah, answers. we're not going to last long enough. Yeah. What, what should we all be looking for in 2021? Are there going to be any great moments, things in the sky, developments, changes that are going to be uh, profound? Uh, you mean besides the vaccine, of course, right? Just yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I meant more up there than down here. Yeah, more up there than down there. Okay, fair enough. So um, 
tune into NASA TV on February 18th. That's yeah. when you know, the Perseverance rover is landing. And then don't go away. The landing is a really cool moment of drama and you can see it happening in real time. But then watch this robot as it begins to sort of wake up and move around Mars because I would tell you the last time they did this back in 2012, they found an ancient riverbed in two weeks and it was barely covered compared to the landing. Like that was almost as momentous, right? Because they found yeah. essentially it was dried up, but it had rounded stones. It had chemicals that only come from water. It had raw water in that area. So keep an eye on it. If James Webb gets up there, you're going to want to keep an eye on that too, because uh, that's going to be transmitting missions, missions, transmitting images from across the universe. Right. And, um, I think that ultimately the best thing to do is to go to the Canadian Space Agency social media feeds and same for NASA and just get a sense about the breadth of things they're doing on the International Space Station and in other places. I mean, one day you might get an odd finding from Jupiter, but it's still really interesting. And today, for example, I wrote about Mars. It wasn't really about life so much, but the fact that Mars has a weird wobble. I just found that inherently interesting because it was very close to how Earth wobbles. And I was going, huh, two planets that had water or have water, and they wobble in about the same way. What but do you that mean wobble? Yeah. What, well, what do you mean? So when they're they're doing their little spin every day, yeah, you know, yeah, 24 hour day, they wobble while they're doing that. Okay. Yeah. And so they can actually measure how long this wobble takes and how far out of line. So it's not wobbling like a perfect circle. It's doing it kind of like this. And they think that it's because uh, there might be some atmosphere on there that's basically trying to interfere with how it's moving around. But they don't even know. It could be a sign of ancient water or something, all the oceans that used to be on Mars. So I just think it's inherently interesting. <laughs> I'll just blame that for my bad cell service. That sounds like a really exciting, you know, bad well, guy. <laughs> Such fun to talk with you. Thanks, Elizabeth. I'm very glad that you grew up to be a science geek so that uh, so that we could have this conversation. And thank you, Senator. I'm so pleased to speak yeah. about this for Canadians because I'm a Canadian. Yeah. I love the work that our country is doing, and I really would love to do this more often. And so are there any Canadians out there that want to ask me questions? Here I am. You know, I don't want to be just talking to the Americans and the Europeans, also my own yeah. country. You know, that's why I live here. That's why I chose not to move. <laughs> well, and, and you've got the kids that are learning online and sitting in classrooms, but not able to go out. Like, this is always exciting stuff. So thank you for making it comprehensible and understanding, understandable. So all the best in 2021. All the best. And let's hope we can see each other in person once that vaccine happens. Absolutely. We'll do this again. Thanks. Thanks so much. Elizabeth Howell, who is the author of Canadarm and Collaboration, The Search for Life on Mars and the Science of Time Travel. Lots of stuff. You can follow her online, obviously. Thanks for joining us for this edition of No Nonsense.